Lord God, please be with us now. Help us to grapple with your word, to understand uh, clearly. Please give us insight into what it means for our attitudes, how we think, but also uh, what we communicate to those around about us, how we, we talk about our faith. And, and we pray that you'll uh, help us to uh, have a desire to only and always trust in Jesus and for others to know the great freedom that we know. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I think there is an incredible confusion in Australia when it comes to understanding what Christianity is about. And it's an entirely understandable confusion. That is, I think most people think that Christianity is a religion. And by religion, we could mean a couple of different things. One is we could mean it's just a, a sociological phenomena. Uh, you have different sociological phenomena in different parts of the world. So in Australia, you've got a very significant kind of Christian religion. There are, of course, particularly with the increase in immigration and multiculturalism, a number of other religions as well. But many people just simply look on them as sociological phenomena. That is, things that people do collectively together. There's another perspective that I think runs alongside this that most people that I've had any serious conversation with about the Bible, about Christianity, tend to believe, and that is that religion has to do with the things that you do in order to make yourself right with God. And it, it might be that you do it in a Christian way, uh, or it could be that you do it in a Mormon way, or a Buddhist way, or an Islamic way, or a Hindu way, or some other way altogether. But at the bottom of what people mean by religion is our efforts to get right with God or the gods. And many people, therefore, I think, look at Christianity and they see people who call themselves Christians who are, in their perspective, working hard to get right with God, but they know that we're failing. And so they see us as hypocrites. And, of course, when you get the attention that's given uh, in the media to child abuse in churches... Uh, to fraud in churches, to tax avoidance in churches, to all kinds of awful behaviour. It is just an extreme form of hypocrisy and people want nothing to do with it. Back in the 1950s and 60s, people saw religion as, well, it was uh, a part of society. It was something that had been around for a while. It was part of keeping things on track Nowadays, when people look at religion, they see something which is offensive and dangerous. And I think it's very important for us, as God's people, to understand that we're not talking about religion in those terms. That is, we are not people who are trying to earn our place with God. That's just not what the Christian message is. And secondly, we, I think, need to work hard to communicate to those around about us what the Christian message genuinely is. And this passage in the heart of Philippians, I think, takes us right into this issue, this issue of the place of religion. Back in the first century, there were people who did believe that the things that you did would make you right with God. 
they would put it like this yes you've got Jesus but you need to add things to Jesus they were often described as Judaizers that is they'd take things from Jewish faith it might be circumcision and say okay you've become a Christian but if you're truly going to be a Christian if you want to be right with God then and you're a male a boy or a man you need to be circumcised if you haven't been already there were others who might say you've got to only eat particular types of foods or abstain from eating other foods or drink certain things but not other things or celebrate certain days but not others See, what they were doing was they were adding things to the Christian message because they thought that if you worked hard enough in these things that God might accept you. Now, this attitude to religion gets challenged by Jesus himself when he comes into contact with a guy called Saul who later changes his name to Paul. You can read about the conversion of this man Saul in Acts chapter 9 and this is the guy who writes this letter that we know now as the Apostle Paul but he wasn't always a Christian. In fact he was somebody who was devoutly meticulously religious but not Christian. He had the right pedigree and his performance was exemplary. He had everything going for him when it came to religion. This is a guy that if you were measuring the best and fairest for religion, he'd be the kind of, uh, well, as Don Bradman is to cricket, so Paul is to religion. He was the best. You would never expect to find someone as good as Paul. But he has a reversal in his thinking. So let's have a look at this together. Uh, I encourage you to open up your Bibles, to open up the handout perhaps. It's got the Bible passage there. Just a little aside as we get into it. I am tempted to think that the first part of verse 1 goes with what we read last week. That what he said about looking out for Timothy and Epaphroditus and the example that he gives and they give... He finishes with, further or finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. Full stop, new paragraph. I think that's how it works. See, in the, in the Greek manuscripts that they get this from, they don't separate paragraphs. In fact, they don't even separate words. So you've got to work through. You've done the word search things. You know, you can see where a word starts and where it finishes. It's not hard to read the Greek text if you know Greek. And you can kind of work out what the words are. But it's difficult for us to know, I think, whether this goes with what went before or with what follows. Nothing too much hangs on it, but I think it's better put with what went before. So we start then with Paul saying, It's no trouble for me to write to you the same things again, and it's a safeguard for you. He says, Watch out for these dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh, for it's we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. When he says, I put no confidence in the flesh, uh, I take it what he's saying is he is not boasting in, he's not confident in 
the things that he does or his particular pedigree as a Jew. He says, these people who put their confidence in their uh, race, their, their family tree, these people who put their confidence in the works that they do, I don't boast in that stuff, he says. But if I wanted to, I'd beat them. So look at what he says then, in, <clears throat> pardon me, in verse 4 and following. He says, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, or I meant to just explain that as, if someone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in his religious performance, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. You couldn't point the finger at Paul and say, well, you don't really belong. Because his ancestry, his pedigree, his family tree are absolutely terrific. Paul has got what it takes. If you get right with God by being in the right family, he's there. It doesn't take anything else. Now, I think that's an issue that a lot of children of Christian parents need to work through. I know that when I left home, I had to work out whether my belief was my own belief or whether I just inherited it from my family background. And I came back to the scriptures and I asked the questions and I explored what it said about Jesus and so on. And I came to the point where I accepted it for myself. But you don't get it by being part of the family. But secondly, it's not his performance. Look at his performance. He says, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. Paul was a Pharisee. Now, I don't know if you know too much about Pharisees. When I was growing up in the church... Uh, and I heard about Pharisees, they were the people that you booed. Right? They were the bad guys. Jesus, good guy. Disciples, good guys. Pharisees, boo. They're the bad guys. But we need to understand why they're the bad guys in the gospel. The reason is because they were putting confidence in their religious actions. They were putting trust in their law-keeping, their rituals. For Paul to be a Pharisee isn't saying he's a bad guy. It's saying that he had studied very, very seriously how to be right with God. Perhaps in our terms, Paul had been to Jewish Theological College. Not only done an undergraduate degree, but followed it up with a doctorate, a postdoctorate, and is now lecturing in the best of the Jewish colleges. So performance-wise, he's got a lot going for him. He's doing all this stuff in regard to the law of Pharisee as for zeal, persecuting the church. Now, that seems to be a black mark. In fact, it, it is, but we need to understand what Paul's saying there. What he's saying is he's so committed to his Jewish faith and his religious performance that when he sees somebody claiming to be God and sees people worshipping a man claiming to be God, he's got to persecute those people. 
He's got to put them into prison. Some of them deserve to die. And that's what we see Paul on about at the beginning of the book of Acts. He wants to condemn and confine these people who believe that Jesus is God. Because God can't be constrained in a man. God is the creator of the entire universe. What blasphemy must have been going on for people in the first century at the time of Paul to say, we worship Jesus. Jesus was a man who walked around in Palestine, but it's worse than that. Jesus was executed on a cross. And Paul would have understood from the book of Deuteronomy that anyone who hangs on a cross is under the curse of God. So these Christians, they're going around saying, we worship a crucified saviour. We worship somebody who was cursed by God. And we think that he is God. And so Paul is persecuting them. Now, he got it all wrong, but let's see what he's saying here. He's absolutely fair income committed to his religious performance. And then he says, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. We looked uh, just last term at the Ten Commandments, ten of them. You go on and you read all the other commandments, I think there's around about 600 more. You take the other writings that the Pharisees would have held dear and you can add thousands to the ten, to the 610 or whatever. Paul says, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. Paul has every reason before he meets Jesus to think when it comes to religion, he's doing well. He expects everything to be to his profit. But look at verse 7. He says, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. Paul used to think that his religious performance was good. Now he sees it as bad. He used to think that the things that he did were helping him to relate to God. Now he sees that they're not helpful at all. He used to think that he would be gaining status with God, i.e. profit. But now he realizes that he was doing damage, i.e. debit. A massive reversal in his thinking. Let me illustrate this. When, uh, when Fiona and I bought a home in Canberra, we got a loan with a bank that was one of those kind of loans they used to have back in the 80s uh, and early 90s for helping people to make a start with their payments. That is, they got people to pay extra at the start. And this was uh, a time when interest rates were 17, 18%. Yes, they were. And we got one of these particular loans with the bank and I, I had every reason to expect that I would be getting ahead with my payments because they were setting it up in a way where we paid fortnightly the amount that we would other, otherwise um, 
paying monthly, we would pay more by paying fortnightly. So I expected I was getting ahead. And then I got a letter from the bank. I've kept it. <clears throat> Let me read this to you. It says, Dear customer, the names were above, notice of outstanding repayment. Your loan account is currently in arrears. And then they published the amount. If you disagree with the arrears balance or if you are not in a position to correct the situation, we urge you to contact this department on this number uh, so that we can make an arrangement to your mutual satisfaction. Please give this letter your immediate attention and then a guy's name, Residential Collections Department of the St George Bank. I really didn't know how I could be in arrears. I could go back and look at my bank account and I had been paying out that amount fortnightly. They told me that would get me ahead. So I followed up the letter. There was an explanation. There's a little prefix that you put at the start of the number. It's different from the ACT to New South Wales. Someone in New South Wales had been getting all of my mortgage repayments. What I thought was to my profit was in fact to my loss. Now they sorted that one out. But in Paul's assessment of how he's going with God, what he thought would be gaining him credit is actually debit. Well, friends, it's not just loss. If you have a look closely at what's going on here, you see that it's not just negative, it's in fact more dangerous still. In verse 8, he says, um, What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Paul sees it as negative, he sees it as garbage, the word for garbage here is actually excrement. I think if we had an Australian translation in front of us, I don't know if you've got one in there on the table, Bill, Paul is basically saying, I consider it all crap compared to knowing Jesus Christ. All of my religious pedigree all my religious performance, it's crap, counts for nothing. It's garbage. It's fit for the toilet. Flush it away. It counts for nothing. In fact, not only that, but it's actually dangerous. Because people who say that the right way to be okay with God is through religious performance are persuading other people to put their trust in the wrong thing. Religious people are dangerous people. Now, there's an alternative to religion. Let's see what says. He says, Whatever were gains to me, verse 7, I consider loss for the sake of Christ. Verse 8, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Verse 9, I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. 
not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Just notice these phrases. I'll recap. He he wants to know Christ, Christ Jesus, my Lord. He wants to gain Christ. He wants to be found in Christ. He wants to have his faith in Christ. He wants to know Christ. He wants to participate in Christ. He wants to become like Christ. You see, Paul, when he looks at his past, which was on about working hard to please God, garbage compared with relationship to Christ. See, it's not about rules and rituals. It's not religious performance. It's completely relational. Relationship with Christ. They're relational words, aren't they? For the sake of Christ. Parents do things for the sake of their children. It's relational. Knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, it's relational being found in Christ, trusting in Christ, knowing Christ, participating in Christ, becoming like Christ. We we need to make it clear that this is about relationship, not religion. It's got to do with the relationship that is with God in Christ. It's not an ideology. It's not a philosophy. It's not a form of morality. It's not a set of rituals and regulations It's about being united with Christ. It's about being brought into God's family. And how does it come about? Well, we're told very clearly there in verse 9, it is through faith in Christ. See, the Christian message is not work hard in the hope that you will please God. It is put your faith in Christ. It's relationship, not ritual or regulations or rules. But so too, when you think about it, it's not about what you do for God, what you do for Christ. It's fundamentally what has been done for you by God, by Christ, through Christ, in Christ. You see, the essence of how people understand religion is what you do for God but the essence of the Christian faith is what God has done for you it's it's done not do two letters make a big difference friends when you think about it If one day we will stand before God and give an account and on the basis of that account God will either accept us or reject us. He'll welcome us into heaven with him or he'll cast us out forever. What do you want to say at that point? Well I tried. I I did the best I could. My family were believers. 
I went along to church. I was baptized. I gave some money to church when they reminded me. What do you want to say at that point? When, when God says, and I don't know if it'll be in these terms, but let's imagine when God says, why should I let you in? What do you want to say? See, I reckon if, if it's the way of religion, <clears throat> some of us are going to do better than others. I think I've got a bit going for me. You see, my dad was a minister. And so was my grandfather on my mother's side. And I was born while my dad was at Bible college. Born kind of right into the religious stream from, from the very beginning. And I always went along to church, to Sunday school, to a, a Christian Endeavour program, to a youth group, to all these things. In fact, I can remember the first time that I didn't go to church on a Sunday. And I can still remember it clearly because I always went. Stayed with my uncle. He said, we're going to go on Puffing Billy up in the Dandenongs. And we didn't go to church. And I felt guilty for years. I left home, I went to university, I, I started to work through things, I went along to Bible study groups, I, I, I got involved in Christian ministry, I ended up doing a ministry apprenticeship, got to be some points for that. Went to a Bible college for four years, got to be a few there. Did some follow-up study after that and got a master's, hey, doing well. Worked for the church for over 30 years. I think I've probably preached over a thousand sermons. Come on. Can you match it? What does it count for? Crap. That's not any good at making me right with God. If Paul failed, then don't you think you and I are going to fail? If that's not the way to be right with God, then... Why go that way? And why let others think for a minute that that might be the way to go? See, it's, it's not what we do. It's what he has done. And if God asks me that question, I, I don't want to be pointing to any attempts. I want to point away from me to Jesus. So it's not my self-righteousness. It's Jesus' God-given righteousness. What a wonderful gift that is. So friends, I want to land this in two places. The first is to say that this passage, I think, helps us to be confident of being right with God. Um, this is a long, long time ago now, but I, I did get to see this and it, it made uh, quite an impact on people at the time. There was an evangelist called Billy Graham who came to Australia in 1979. There was a journalist called Mike Willisey uh, who interviewed him. And he asked Billy Graham if he was sure that he was going to heaven and Billy said yes. And Mike Willisey was shocked that anybody could be so arrogant as to be sure that they were going to heaven. Billy wasn't arrogant because it had nothing to do with his performance. 
And I tell you, you don't get better performance than Billy Graham. It had nothing to do with what he had done and had everything to do with what Jesus had done for Billy and for you and for me. So I want us to be confident. And if you're not sure where you stand with God, if you wonder sometimes, like I did as a teenager, whether I've done enough to be right with God, whether I've remembered every bad thing that I'd ever done so that I could confess it and get that out of my, uh, my, my, my way so that God would see me now as okay, then know this, no matter of repentance, no matter of good works will ever make you right with God. The only way you can be right with God is by Jesus, who died in your place and was raised again, and by you putting your trust in Jesus. That is great news. It really is. It's liberating news. And if any of you are tempted to think, oh, I'm not really that bad, then probably you need to have a closer look at God because the difference between you and God is bigger than you think. And God's standards are perfection. How can you be perfect? Well, by putting your trust in Jesus. It's not your righteousness, it's his righteousness that clothes you. I, I want us to be clear on this. I, I would be saddened to have us anxious and worrying that we are good enough for God because it shows that we've not understood the good news because it's not about being good enough for God, it's about God declaring you righteous through Jesus. That's the first thing. And if you're struggling with assurance of where you stand with God, please come and tell me. Send me a message or let's catch up and let's talk it through. Because maybe the rest of your life could be so different if you are able to escape the, the fears of not being good enough. But secondly, I want to talk about communication. Because... The church is getting silenced at every level. And in some ways, it's getting what it deserves. You present a message of be good and God will accept you. You live in a way which is not. You don't deserve a hearing. But let's not have people dismiss Christianity based on a false picture of what the Christian faith is. Let's open up and talk about the truth that scripture reveals. See, one, one of the conversation stoppers that I have regularly is this. Uh, so what do you do? Um, oh, I'm, I'm a chippy, I'm, I build houses. What do you do? Oh, I'm a minister. Oh, okay. Doesn't go very far. Uh, it's a bit of a conversation stopper. A friend of mine used to answer that question with this. The Anglican Church pays me to try and persuade people to become Christians. To which they would reply, oh, how do you do that? Well, let me show you. <laughs> um, we can be a little creative. We, when people would say to me, oh, I'm not much into religion, I would try to say, that's good because I'm not either. Oh, I thought you were a minister. I am. Oh, how does that work? Well, let me tell you. 
Maybe you've got people that you've known for years who have dismissed a false picture of the Christian faith. Who could you be praying for? Who could you be talking to? Who could you catch up with? Who could you sit down and read the Bible with? Well, I encourage us to know that we've got a great message that's liberating, that's not boastful, that's real, that we relate to a real saviour and we don't need to be ashamed that we've got outdated ideas because it's not just ideas. It's real and it's true. How about we pray? Loving Father, we thank you for your amazing mercy towards us in Jesus. We thank you for the righteousness that can be ours, not because of our pedigree or our performance, but only and always because of Jesus. I bring before you any of us here this afternoon who may feel insecure before you or worried perhaps about where we stand please make it clear help us to see Jesus clearly and help us to trust in Jesus and father for those around about us who've dismissed the Christian message because they see religious hypocrisy please open up a door for us to communicate give us the courage give us the grace uh, to share the truth that it's not about what we do for you, but about what you've done for us. Amen.